Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad whose favorite pastime is collecting Genshin lewds, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? <laughs> That's not true. If anyone here is a culprit of that, it's you sending them to me. <laughs> Not the other way around. You always smash the like whenever I send you the Ayaka loot. I mean, so. that's true. <laughs> All right. So I think this is the first episode where people are going to start realizing that we're building up a backlog for this vacation that I mentioned on the past episode and that the news is just going to be out of order and that there's going to be this big gap of just stuff that we didn't talk about that came out. But it has to be that way. There's a few things I wanted to get through and we have a guest. So I'm going to try to get through it as efficiently as possible. Spoilers. <laughs> Yeah, spoilers. If you didn't read the episode title before clicking on this, I guess that's spoilers. Um, Okay, so stuff that happened over the weekend. Season 2 of Vinland Saga got announced for January 2023. It's now being done at MAPPA, like everything else apparently, and not at Studio WIT. But it is the same team who did it at WIT. And it seems like quite a bit of a passion project for them. Like They actually interact with a lot of fans writing out stuff in English and just generally seem very passionate about Vinland Saga, which is good to see. And the trailer looked good. So I'm really looking forward to that. I've heard the pace slows down quite a bit in this arc and it gets a little bit more character focused, but I really enjoyed it. I know you did as well. So I'm excited about that. And then I was going to talk about how Anime Expo decided to not require proof of vaccination anymore at the con, which was announced like a month before. But they actually went back on this after a ton of community pushback, which was really good to see. Can cons stop doing that? <laughs> like, apparently that's just the thing Yeah, now. it was really warranted. I don't understand what that decision was, but I'm really glad they walked that back. After everyone in the comments was like, I bought my tickets thinking that people were going to be vaxxed. Yeah, like that just needs to be standard checks. End of story. Don't change policy right before, regardless. And then two more anime announcements. So one is Studio Trigger, which we just hit an episode about, is making a cyberpunk Edgerunners anime coming out on Netflix in September. And an adaptation was announced for Oshinoko, which I don't know a lot about the source material, but the manga is by Kaguya-sama's author and has won a lot of awards. Apparently is like some dark Japanese entertainment industry theme. I've heard it's good. I don't know anything about it, but... I love Kaguya-sama, so I'm looking forward to it. I've heard it's best just go in with zero expectations, so I'm just not even going to read the show synopsis. <laughs> and then the very last thing is that Shaft actually announced that they are opening a new studio branch called Shaft.aoi, if that's how you pronounce that, in Shizuoka. So not in Tokyo, which I think is generally a good move to cut costs and I don't know what kind of revitalization it might lead to Shaft projects that everybody wants to see everybody being myself that you want yeah, to exactly see. that you want to see <laughs> definitely me um but i guess we'll see sort of what the the plan is for that and if it sort of becomes more of a trend in the industry to shift studios away from tokyo with how expensive it is but i don't know hopefully it's a sign for some kind of shaft uh, revitalization because i need that in my life <laughs> <laughs> well on today's episode, we're very excited to have on a guest that has worn many hats within the anime industry, from writer to developer to podcast host. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Evan Minto, and uh, thank you for the intro there. Currently, the hat that I'm most prominently wearing is I'm uh, one of the co-founders and the marketing and licensing director and lead developer, and a bunch of other things for Azuki, which is a digital manga subscription service. And I also co-host the Anti Gamers podcast and run the blog over at AntiGamers.com. 
And I've written for a bunch of places, Anime News Network, Otaku USA. We'll talk about all that. We sure will. So as Evan said, he's a freelance designer, developer, writer, and speaker that's worked for major names within the anime industry, such as Crunchyroll, Kodansha, Anime News Network, and Otaku USA. Most recently, he served as the co-founder and head of marketing and licensing for Azuki, a subscription digital manga service startup. Today, we'll be talking with Evan about the trajectory of his varied career within the anime industry, what it's like to build a digital manga service, and what the future holds for manga licensing and distribution. So let's get into it. So Evan... The most important question I'm going to ask you on today's episode. Have you finished watching Toradora yet? God damn it. You guys found the change.org petition? Of course we did. That's the first question. Oh, man. This is already a pretty good interview. Uh, I was just looking at that recently, coincidentally. I was like, just just reading through those comments. Uh, I have not watched Toradora yet because of the change.org petition. (laughs) Out of spite. I'm not watching yeah. it now. <laughs> I was going to ask if there was a reason you haven't gotten to Torador yet or if it is out of spite. Like, I think we all have that anime series that we just know is like big in the community and just haven't seen. So is that pretty much what it is for you? Well, I mean, the reason I hadn't generally hadn't watched it is is despite, you know, you guys are being very nice about like, oh, Evan's done all this stuff. Nowadays, especially, I don't actually I don't watch as much anime as you might think I do. Right. I mean, I've I have watched a lot, but uh, it's it's a little harder sometimes to just kind of like put something on. And that was kind of the case with Toradora, where it was like, oh, that's a thing people always say. It's not maybe not my genre wheelhouse. And then the the whole reason for the, I don't know if you guys ever listened to the, the podcast I used to host, the whole reason for the petition is just uh, Victoria was was screwing around and thought it would be, you know, like the show a lot and thought it would be funny to stick our entire audience on me for it. Well, for everybody listening to this, including ourselves, go sign the petition, please. Just Just do it. Yeah, that petition is, I don't know, God, more than five years old now? I forget when that came out. That's, yeah. Yeah. Well, instead of watching anime, are you reading more manga now that you actually have a subscription service devoted to it? Yeah, but not, this is the the problem, of course, when, uh, as Satoshi Kon said, you uh, make your hobby your job, then you don't have a hobby anymore. So, like, I'm reading more manga, but a lot of the manga I'm reading is in Japanese, and it's, like, stuff that we're trying to license, and I am trying to kind of get myself reading a bit more just English stuff because I'm spending almost too much time reading kind of prospective Japanese licenses. And we're in like a golden age for English manga right now. So there's a lot of publishers doing really good stuff. But yeah, in general, a lot more manga now that it's like a big focus of my my job. I'm currently reading uh, I Think Our Son is Gay, which is really cute uh, from Square Enix. Yeah. Nice. Well, let's actually start at the beginning, and we do this with every one of our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into anime and manga? What was your experience like growing up with it? So how I got into it, I think, is a pretty typical answer for people my age. I watched Pokemon. That's kind of like the the patient zero for me. Probably wasn't the first episode I saw, but in my head, I remember it being the ghost Pokemon episode. Uh, And I guess... Nowadays, there's many ghost Pokemon episodes, but I'm talking about like original Pokemon. So this would be like, I think there's a tower or something and it's got Ghastly and Gengar and all them. So I watched that at some point in elementary school and was really taken with it. And from there, basically, it was a lot of like 
TV anime, right? Because that was Toonami, things like that were, were going on around that mm-hmm. time. Kids WB, I think, had some anime on there. Yeah, I watched a bunch of stuff there. So Pokemon, Digimon, Gundam Wing, Dragon Ball Z, Veroni Kenshin, right? That whole generation of shows. And a big evolution of my fandom was the internet, right? Was moving from just watching these shows on TV to discovering, oh, there's all these people talking about it. With Dragon Ball in particular, mm-hmm. discovering like, wait, this is based on a manga. There's like a comic book version of this. And weirdly, I thought about this recently. Manga wasn't, to me, it was like this weird thing that was like in Japan and you couldn't get it, but you could get it. Like it was being published. I just didn't know that it was in bookstores until yeah. a couple of years later. I think when I started getting into the anime communities, my first interaction with other people that were interested in anime was AnyTube. And that was in the late 2000s. So it was relatively late for me. Hmm. For you, when you say you were looking into the internet for communities, where were you finding them? Well, this was, this would have been maybe early, very early 2000s, like 2001, 2002. And it was kind of before social media, before YouTube, certainly. And so this was like, fan sites that people made. So I should shout out what I think was a pretty influential fan site. I've met other people who were a fan of this one. It's called lelola.net, L-E-L-O-L-A.net. It's, it sounds like- I've not heard bit, of this. Yeah. If you got into anime yeah. through YouTube, it's probably before your time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was just some girl in like Toronto who liked anime and, you know, handcrafted her own HTML site. And it was just a bunch of like episode summaries and little images she made and like badges and stuff, right? Little photoshops, blog posts before blogs were really a thing, but that that kind of like live journal style journal thing. I think anybody who gets into anime when you're young, there is this like amazing feeling kind of no matter what medium you use. I think YouTube would probably give you the same experience of just this whole world opening up. You're meeting all these people who know about these things that you've never heard of. And you're like, wait, what about this show? What about this thing? Wait, what? (laughs) You mentioned that your story is a little bit, quote unquote, typical in the sense of getting into anime through something like Pokemon. And for me, it was like very similar, certainly with Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and things like that. But I feel like for a lot of people, there's this transition point where you realize okay, maybe what I was watching already were just these cartoons and there's something slightly different about them than other cartoons, but I don't quite know what it is. And then at some point there's a transition to realizing, oh, this is anime from Japan and getting more deeply Mm. into it with sort of like a second gateway show. And I certainly had that. And that was something like Death Note or, or later on Steins Gate for me. At what point did you realize that there was this bigger world and were there any other shows after the ones you mentioned that like really catapulted you into fandom? You know, what's weird. And I've heard that story from people in multiple generations, like younger people and also, you know, people much older than me who have that experience of being like, oh, wait, this is from Japan. This is a whole different thing. I can't pinpoint when that happened, but I think it was probably Dragon Ball was the transition point because that was the point when I started learning about the other stuff around it, right? Like learning about the manga and kind of connecting to the fact that like there's a lot more where that came from beyond just what what was on TV. Yeah. And so when you were growing up watching anime, did you ever consider having a career within the industry? And if not, when did you eventually decide to step foot into that? That is a a great question. And I have a sort of an answer I always think is kind of funny, which is I just never even really thought about it until it was already basically there. Maybe I'm biased. I think that's 
a little bit healthier maybe than than making your whole life about trying to get into the anime yeah. industry. So to me, it was kind of like a hobby that I was like, ah, but it's like a small industry. Like even when I was old enough to be thinking about careers and like whatever, high school, college, I was like, I'm not a translator or anything. Like, what am I going to do in the manga or anime industry? Right. So it's kind of like, a, oh, whatever. It's like a thing I'm into, but I'm never going to have like a full time job doing it. That doesn't really make sense. I, you know, I do programming and art stuff, even though. It turns out you can do those in the anime industry, yeah. <laughs> like you can be a graphic designer. And in my case, my mom told me like, well, you do all this anime stuff. You should be able to get a job in it. Right. And uh, and then I was looking for jobs after graduating college, like shortly after graduating. And I was like, oh, wait, Crunchyroll is a website. Websites <laughs> need programmers. <laughs> like this really dumb revelation that I hadn't thought of before. <laughs> So did you actually study computer science? In yeah, I was I undergrad? was studying computer science and uh, something called at my college electronic media arts and communication. I was studying basically animation. I was doing 3D animation and computer science. But I mean, in my head, I wasn't like I'm going to do 3D animation in Japan. I was like, yeah. I'd like to do 3D animation in the US. <laughs> right? Yeah. It wasn't like trying to join the anime industry. So that was kind of the step where I realized that I could have a full time job doing it. But I guess if I rewind because I was getting paid to do anime stuff. So I had some kind of anime job before that, but it was freelance writing for Otaku USA, which freelance writing about anime is not going to pay your rent generally. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was the result of just many years of blogging about it for free, for fun, which evolved from those fan site days. I made my own fan sites in, in school and eventually started getting into more critical stuff, writing reviews and blog posts. And the next phase of that was to be like, oh, I'd like to get paid to do this. I'd like to write for, you know, an, an actual big outlet. Through all of that, I, I ended up starting a podcast because it was the cool thing to do in 2008. Still is. And met a bunch of other podcasters who I was a fan of, right? And ended up kind of becoming friends with some of them. And knowing like other anime, manga, bloggers and podcasters, that was like my in. That, so that's where I got a couple of recommendations from people where it's like someone needed a writer and they were like, oh, Evan does a blog, like you could hire him. And that got me into writing one article for about.com for Deb Aoki, who's mm -hmm. a great manga writer. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my first like paid anime or manga writing gig. And then Otaku USA, which my, my friend Erin Finnegan, who used to write there, used to run a podcast called the Ninja Consultant Podcast. She recommended me to write an article about the Studio Dean Fate Stay Night for Otaku USA <laughs> magazine. <laughs> Because I guess nobody else wanted to take oh, it, times. which I later learned why nobody wanted to take it. <laughs> I was going to say, did you like the Studio Dean Fate Stay Night? Uh, no. I mean, <laughs> I, it was my first experience with Fate, and I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the biggest Fate fan, but I was like, oh, this is a cool idea. I don't really like how this show executes it, but I bet this could be cool if executed differently. And then it turns out, you know, a, a decade plus of them doing that. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that you coded up a few fan sites yourself what were those about and are any of them still active actually all right none of them are still active unfortunately <laughs> i think there's <laughs> only the one maybe i, I might have made one that's just like evan's website but there was only one real like dedicated fan site and that was called so uh, first off my my like username online that i've been using since i was a kid is vampedvo has nothing to do with vampires i just thought it sounded cool uh <laughs> So it was called VVDBZ, Vampedvo's Dragon Ball Z. And 
it was, you know, it looked like a fan site of the time. It had like the sidebar with the the main column. And the distinct thing I remember about it is it was, uh, let's see if I remember the exact version. I think it was like Super Boo from Dragon Ball Z. Uh, like the one where he's just shirtless without the, yeah. there's all the different versions, yeah. right? Where he observes different yeah. people. It was like a picture of Super Boo tiled in the background. It's like a very busy looking design. Yeah, that's that's a 2000s website for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That was the big one. And then Annie Gamers, my current thing, it's been around for a very long time and sort of started a bit as a fan site and transitioned into a blog. And it was kind of my attempt to take my interests in anime and games and turn those into something that was more general than just Dragon Ball Z. But it was, you know, I was like, I started it when I was very young. So I wasn't really thinking like, what's the brand here? I was just, it was still kind of in fan site <laughs> yeah. mode. Uh, and it has later evolved many, many times to eventually become what it is now, which is more of a podcast network with a blog attached nowadays. <laughs> but yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've already given us, I think, a pretty good sense for how your early interests and through your college education ended up transitioning into a job in the industry. But do you want to just maybe break down for us your full career trajectory and how you ended up also doing a bunch of podcasts at Crunchyroll, what you actually did yeah. at Crunchyroll, how that transitioned into the stuff you do now with Azuki and et cetera? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a bunch of parts to that story. I should say the, the sort of transition into paid work happened when I was in college and it was because I was already writing and I was doing some paid writing about I was I wrote for a local newspaper for a little bit or a local. It wasn't even a newspaper. It was like a blog that build itself as a digital newspaper. I did not, I think I get paid maybe $25 for each of those articles, which is Was this about anime? Enough. No, no, this was just like, low, like I went to school board meetings and things. Oh, <laughs> I, I see, like okay. High school or college, high school, I think. Yeah. That sounds like not minimum wage, but maybe at the time. <laughs> uh, it was, no, 25 is not enough. For, yeah. for something where you have to go report on like an actual, yeah. you know, planning yeah. board meeting or something, you shouldn't be yeah. getting paid yeah. $25. But it was like, I agree with that. they were taking advantage of teenagers, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was always kind of interested in writing since I was in about high school. And that aspect was like pursuing being a sort of anime journalist. And... I studied computer science and animation, was trying to get a job doing either game development or animation, ended up not getting a job doing those. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I got that job at Crunchyroll that I applied to partially. The story is of with many of these things is about connections, right? So I knew a guy at Crunchyroll who was, uh, his name was Keith Kawamura, he's no longer there. And he was my like press contact for Gamers. This is like the, the, you know, using each rung of the ladder to get to the next one. So mm -hmm. having the blog gave me a contact with Crunchyroll and he was my person who, you know, I would send him when we put out a review and stuff. Then I asked him for a recommendation when I applied, right? So that helped me get in. And yeah, at Crunchyroll, I was just hired as a software engineer and it didn't really have much to do with my writing or podcasting or anything like that. I think that maybe helped just show that I was like a culture fit or whatever, that I was interested in anime. Yeah. What I did at Crunchyroll was I was just annoying about it. And I was like, I'd like to do other stuff on top of this. <laughs> and I was already podcasting. So I started the podcast in like college uh, or maybe uh, late high school, which is embarrassing. Do not listen to the early episodes <laughs> of the podcast. We already feel like that about our own podcast <laughs> yeah. that we started like a yeah. year and a half ago. So we can totally commiserate with that. Yeah. You just got to live with the cringe. 
Yeah. That's right. I mean, cringe, cringe is cool now, maybe sort of turning back around. <laughs> so I think one of the first things I did was I was like, I want to go to conventions with Crunchyroll. And I didn't really tell these stories a ton when I was there because it was too close to the time. But I can probably be a little bit more honest about it. It's like I got a lot of pushback. People were like, no, we don't do that. We don't bring software engineers anymore. You know, that used, <laughs> they used to do that when they were really small. But when I was there, yeah. it was about 40, 50 employees at the beginning. So they were kind of like, we're done with that. We have marketing people for that. We're not like bringing just like random staff. The HR person isn't coming to conventions anymore, right? <laughs> uh, but I kind of just kept pushing and I basically said like, I'll go without any extra pay or whatever. Just just send me and I'll like work the weekend, which was I shouldn't, shouldn't have done. I don't encourage people <laughs> to work without getting paid. Yeah, I <laughs> but I basically just like begged them and convinced them to let me go. And I started off just doing like, sales at anime expo on the show floor it was basically sales not like a professional sales job but it was my job was with the other staff there to just flag down people and be like do you want a free trial of crunchyroll and get them to sign up at the kiosk right so it was not like glamorous podcasting work or anything yeah. but it kind of got me in there and that was actually i think i did that for two years but but by the second year i was doing hybrid floor sales work and doing stuff on stage so that's i guess i eventually started to transition into that because i had that i can't remember how that happened because i had the skill set and i just kept asking to do it or something <laughs> but it eventually got to the point where i started to do stuff kind of on stage at the Crunchyroll. i think they switched from doing this a couple years ago but they used to have a stage built into the booth in hmm. maybe 2014 15 16 around there so the the stage would have like live events and so I started to do stuff on, on stage at Anime Expo with them. So there's like interviews with like guests and things like that. It, it was pretty cool. I did that for a couple of years. And at some point in maybe 2015 was when we started the podcast, which was not my idea. It was actually the idea of Miles Thomas, who used to run a bunch of social media mm -hmm. stuff there. And he was like, Evan and Victoria have a good rapport with each other. Like you should do a podcast. <laughs> and I, I already did a podcast before, right? So I had mm -hmm. like some experience with it. And Victoria had been doing on stage, on camera stuff for Crunchyroll for a while. She's like very good at that, kind of naturally very good at performing and just, just talking extemporaneously. Yeah. So yeah, then we did that show for about a year and a half, the Crunchycast, which was the official Crunchyroll podcast. Not to be confused with a new show they launched called The Crunchy Cast that has nothing I to do with our show. I was going to ask if those were related. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they're related in that they're both official podcasts from yeah. Crunchyroll that have the same name, and I don't have any <laughs> say in that. You know, they yeah. decided to use the name, but there's no, like, continuity. They're two just separate shows. Victoria, I mean, nobody involved with The Crunchy Cast is there anymore. Victoria isn't there. Yeah. I'm not there. Miles isn't there. None of the people yeah. who edited the show at the time are there. <laughs> So there was the Crunchy Cast, which I have very fond memories of. We did that for a couple of years and had like a, a really nice, to be honest, not a huge audience. The new one probably has a bigger audience, but we had like a very rabid audience. They, they were really into it, which was very cool. And we kind of got to do whatever we wanted for most of it. It was not like really scripted to be a marketing thing. It was literally Victoria and Evan show up and hang out <laughs> every week. Yeah. which I think is why people liked it. Yeah. So yeah, left Crunchyroll in 2017 and ended up still doing some freelance work for them, stage work 
mostly stage and screen type stuff. So I was doing like conventions and some video stuff, like a talk on Titan was like a short-lived Attack on Titan show we did. Uh, so that was all freelance. I was still, by the way, coding while all the podcasting stuff was happening. So that was yeah, still like my main the thing, job. The thing you got hired to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's the thing that like fans didn't see, but it was actually the bulk of my job. The podcasting yeah. was only like a couple hours a week. Yeah, so then I, I took a job at the Internet Archive after that. No anime-related stuff there. Just got to work for a cool nonprofit doing web development and design work. And in the meantime, did more freelance work, including Crunchyroll and Otaku USA and a little bit of, I think at that time I was doing some anime news network writing as well. Um, and then after the Internet Archive, spent about two years doing freelance as full-time. And one of my main clients was Kodansha USA, who I knew through the designer, the lead designer there who I had worked with at Crunchyroll. And so he introduced me and, and knew I was doing freelance and they needed a developer to kind of help revamp their site. So I worked for them uh, for about two years in addition to a bunch of other random clients, but not as interesting to, to you. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, uh, helped fix the San Francisco Art Institute website. That's not really a sexy anime job. <laughs> That's still interesting. <laughs> yeah, sure. Then Azuki started to come together kind of in the, in the background while I was doing freelance work. And we eventually decided to actually go for it. And so then I, I ramped down the freelance work. Basically, I couldn't really work for Kodansha anymore if I was launching like a service mm -hmm. that licensed manga from Kodansha is a little bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah. So moved over to Azuki as my mostly full-time gig. That's what I'm doing now. And I can get into any of the details on, uh, on any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll definitely dive into a few of those things <laughs> yeah. that you just mentioned in a second. Right before we do that, just one more sort of broad question. You mentioned just now that you started doing conventions for Crunchyroll. And since then, you still are doing a lot of conventions mm -hmm. and hosting panels and things like that. Could you walk us through some examples of your favorite things you have hosted or put together at conventions and sort of what motivates you even now to keep putting these together? I mean, I imagine a lot of it is marketing and outreach for Azuki, but I'm sure there are other things. Yeah, so I've been doing panels for I don't remember the first one I did actually maybe 2009 so that would be almost that'd be more than 10 years Whew. okay oh, wow. <laughs> the first one had like three people in the audience and it was I don't I think it was about blogging about anime it was at a college convention called CPAC I think I think it was at CPAC uh which is Castle Point anime convention which is the Stevens convention in uh in Hoboken yeah, I started with that. And I think I just did it because I like this is why I do anything, honestly, is because there were like cool people who I liked who were doing it. And I was like, oh, I yeah. want to do that, too. Uh, so I knew some some folks who were doing panels like the Ninja Consultants, who I mentioned, Anime World Order, that podcast, Daryl, Gerald and Clarissa there would do a lot of panels at conventions. And I was just like, well, they're all cool. I want to do that, too. Uh, and I think the ones I really like. To be honest, it's not the marketing ones. The marketing ones are are necessary. You know, they're fun. Yeah. They're they're a way to get the word out about stuff. But yeah, the stuff I enjoy is the ones that are like my own thing because they're kind of a more creative enterprise where I get mm -hmm. to try out different formats and kind of entertain the audience and educate people. So probably one of my favorites, maybe my favorite, because it's it's everybody's favorite honestly, is is anime burger time. But it's the one that absorbs the most psychic energy, even though it's the <laughs> least 
one of the least effort ones, but it is actually the most fun to do. <laughs> That's why I sound disappointed because it's like not my serious panel. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it is a uh, a an hour long video clip show slash comedy show about hamburgers and anime, where I sort of. Uh, <laughs> Should have walked the audience through a sequence of burgers in anime, and you know it's very serious. No, no jokes or anything. Or, yeah, <laughs> there better be a heavy dose of devil is a part timer in that. Well, the thing is, it is compiled from a an archive that I maintain of about three to four hours of burger footage. Wow. So, so devil's a part timer is in there sometimes, depending on which version of it you catch. Yeah. But yeah, I rotate things in and out. <laughs> Do you have a uh, favorite convention to attend? I do. Otakon. Otakon's my favorite con. Hmm. Otakon, okay. Yeah, far and away. It has that kind of like fan con spirit that, uh, to be honest, is not exactly the case at something like Anime Expo, right? So Otakon still feels like a fan convention where the fans are kind of, it's not marketing first, it's fans first, mm-hmm. even though there's a lot of marketing at any big anime convention. And uh, they get great guests, Japanese guests in particular. They have really good relationships there and really good panels. So I I only talked about my like dumb hamburger panel, but (laughs) the kinds of panels that I have always really admired are the kind of educational ones, ones where people really put the research in and they're really more of like a lecture. The word panel is like a weird holdover at anime cons that people use to describe things that are just lectures. Mm -hmm. Things like uh, stuff that Mike Tool does is some of my favorites, like really inspirational to me. If anybody hasn't been to these things, I don't want to make it out like Mike Tool is giving a dry academic lecture. Like his panels are very funny and entertaining, but they're also educational because he knows so much and he's putting all of this research in and like introducing you to all these like kind of esoteric, you know, Italian dubs and things like that that you never would have found otherwise. And like Otakon attracts that caliber of panelists. I don't know why, but that's just the culture. That's who shows up to Otakon. That's what people come to expect. And so... The programming there is crazy. It's like the joke is always that at any given time at Otakon, if you're a person who likes to go to panels and, you know, learn new things and whatever, you will be like quadruple booked for four different panels that all sound great (laughs) that you really want to go to. Yeah. Yeah, we're actually pretty new on the convention scene ourselves and we've been to Anime NYC. Okay, I am. Uh, we've been to Anime NYC, but we've been sort of talking about, okay, what other conventions would we go to and do we want to go to as we start sort of broadening it up? And Otakon's definitely, I think, high on the list. And this is just definitely more of a sales pitch for it because I think that sounds up our alley. Yeah, and I will I will say there are some cons that I have been to. I won't name names because some of them are very lovely cons where I will submit a bunch of panels and they'll be like, they're all accepted. Do whatever you want, right? And that, that's great. I appreciate that I, you know, I'm being respected for the work I put in. But like, I will submit those same panels to Otakon, and they will like all get rejected except for one, which will be put on the wait list. Like, that's the the level mm. of competition that you're dealing with if you submit yeah. stuff to Otakon. <laughs> yeah. So as promised, let's actually move deeper into your career, starting with Crunchyroll. I think most anime fans have now definitely heard the name Crunchyroll because it's one of the largest and most visited anime streaming services. What was your experience like working there and how has it grown as anime has also grown in popularity? I do think Crunchyroll, this is not just because I worked there, I, I think Crunchyroll was pretty important to growing anime. I think having like a site 
like that that pushed the boundaries on simulcasts, right? Like really made simulcasts a thing. And also that like invested the kind of concerted marketing money and effort into individual titles, like really helped a lot. It wasn't just stuff being thrown up on Netflix, to be honest. I mean, I think Netflix is also a key part of the growth of anime, right? As they've gotten more stuff on this like big mainstream service. But I do think like what Netflix is doing is piggybacking on the foundation that Crunchyroll built for that audience. Yeah, I think it's kind of similar to like Toonami in a certain way, having like people who really cared about the material focusing on it. In the same way you think about like a, a TV network, just putting anime next to other stuff versus being like, all right, here's a block where we are going to air just anime and we're going to really like focus on how cool and different this stuff is, right? I mean, the audience has grown incredibly, right? I mean, you can look at like the growth in anime convention attendance, the growth in just, I mean, just in Crunchyroll's numbers, but also like overall viewership of anime has grown. And I think one of the biggest, most notable things you can see is the growth in like its representation elsewhere in pop culture, celebrities talking about anime or, or manga. Who is it? Like uh, Kim Kardashian was like talking about Zero Two from Darling in the Franks. <laughs> Like Megan, I think Megan B. Stallion that. is like a fan of My Hero Academia. Uh, <laughs> Michael B. Jordan loves a bunch of anime, right? He talks about it all the time. You see this in sports all the time, too. Like, I'm a yeah. big sports person and in soccer as well. And you just see tons of soccer stars already doing like anime related celebrations and yeah. stuff like that. And it's, it's wild actually to just see that as an anime. Some sport. of that was like already the case a while ago. Like, I know with soccer, right? There's a lot of South American countries that yeah. where anime has been yeah. bigger for longer than it is here. It's broken more into that mainstream here where it was maybe in like a country like Brazil, a bit more mainstream beforehand. But like now we've hit that point in the US, I think. And I think a a key part of that also is that these kinds of things are on a bit of like a generational delay. Anime basically was pretty mainstream when I was a kid. Like a lot of of kids were watching Toonami and stuff, right? It, It had really compared to like the Robotech generation or whatever. It had broken through to a significant degree with like Pokemon with uh, I think the introduction of like Studio Ghibli movies in English for the first time was a big deal right so that generation got like kind of exposed to anime pretty heavily but that they were still kids right and so I think like what we're seeing the kind of fruits of that where now the people who grew up with that are celebrities actors and and musicians and they're also animators and filmmakers right and so all of that influence is now like kind of blooming it's happened a lot in manga too. Is a lot of people in the comics industry have talked about that. Where like a lot of comics now have pretty heavy manga influence because if you're like a youngish person, if you're like under the age of forty and you're making comics, you probably read manga as a kid, right? Yeah. Can you also maybe try to give us a little window into? what working at Crunchyroll was actually like just on a day-to-day basis? Like, who did you regularly interact with? Like, you said you got there while the company was was still small, and then you sort of worked your way through persistence into doing a bunch of varied jobs. But did people sort of typically do that? How did the company Ah. grow over the years that you were there? Like, how big was it when you left? All all those kind of things. Uh, How big was it when I left was 100-something, 150 maybe? Uh, And I I was there for maybe three and a half years. Yeah, we went through a bunch of changes. We went through a couple different ownership changes and and strategy changes while I was there. The culture definitely changed a lot, like because of the they they hired so many people, right? They more than more than doubled the number of people working there. 
in terms of let's see how like how how common was it for people to work multiple jobs like that pretty uncommon i could probably count on one hand like the number of people i knew who did that kind of double duty i think one of them that people might know if you're on anime twitter is like uh like nate ming who now works for copic he was definitely working in customer support but like like me he kind of pushed for like hey i've got these talents and nate is great he's a great like speaker and he's just like a very good kind of fan advocate right who can speak to fans and and promote stuff and and all of that he's like just very good kind of in public in front of people and uh he just advocated for himself to be like hey put me on camera put me on at live events and things and he was like one of the few people i think who kind of succeeded in that alongside me Nate and I co-hosted a talk on Titan eventually. So kind of <laughs> ended up together there. People get brought together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Nate, Nate's a good friend. I'm a big fan. Most of the people who you would have seen on screen were involved in like the marketing or the audience development teams in some form. And there was just a handful of people who kind of like had the interest and ability to be kind of on screen or on stage. And the company generally didn't want to do it. It wasn't like official policy. It was like you had to really want it and like try to kind of weasel your way into it if you were trying to do it. So you mentioned ownership. And so that does lead me to asking, as someone who worked for Crunchyroll, a streaming service, what is your sort of opinion on or view about or concerns about the merger between Funimation and Crunchyroll, which is sort of the biggest piece of news in the past? Right. On that point, I probably should not pontificate too much, but I will say generally I am not the biggest fan of big companies consolidating. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I also like, I do want to say I know a lot of people at Crunchyroll and Funimation who are great, and to my knowledge, they're mostly all still there. And it's not a guarantee that that this like goes badly or whatever, because uh, you know if those people are still given the leeway to present the content in the way that they think is right and all of that, then I think you can you can preserve a lot of what makes Crunchyroll good, which is like the people doing stuff, right? The actual staff. But it'll, it'll depend. I don't know. I don't exactly, I don't necessarily trust like Sony, right? Well, at least you've yeah. given us a little bit of hope that it might turn out okay. So that's pretty yeah. much all we needed for this. So let's transition to talking about what you called your main hat, which is Azuki. In 2019, you founded Azuki, which is a worker-owned subscription digital manga service. Can you talk about what Azuki is and give us a pitch for what it offers? What niche does it fill that was missing within the manga industry? Yeah, so Azuki is a uh, subscription manga service that lets you stay up to date on your favorite manga with a single monthly subscription. So no buying individual chapters, you pay once per month and uh, have unlimited access to the entire catalog. And we also specialize in simulpubs, which are new chapters released day and date with Japan. We get a bunch of those through one of our partners, Konancha USA, or the Konancha just without the USA nowadays, because they're all kind of <laughs> yeah. the rebranded. But yeah, we work with Konancha as one of the things that's great about Azuki is we work with a bunch of smaller indie publishers, including Starfruit Books and Glacier Bay Books, who put out a lot of self-published independent manga and make that available on Azuki. If you're asking what's what's kind of special about Azuki, you get this wide range from big hits like Eden Zero down to like uh, things like When Pink Rain Falls, which is like a, a one-shot created by an independent creator without big publisher backing, and you can kind of explore that whole range of manga. That's what we do. We're also available 
globally except for Japan in English, and we have apps on the web, iOS, and Android. Cool. What inspired you to actually start this company? So to be clear, I was sort of employee number two, but I'm not the I'm not employee number one. I'm not the the guy who really like kickstarted it. That's our CEO, Abbas Jaffrey. We had worked together at Crunchyroll, and he was kind of looking around for manga to read and just felt like there should be like a subscription service that has this wide range of manga for me to explore good user experience and a kind of frictionless way of, of getting through that. And there were some attempts at it that, that existed, but nothing that had was really successful as far as he was concerned. And a lot of options for digital manga that are a la carte, where you have to pay individually for each volume or each chapter. So that was kind of the, the big idea was to really create something that gave you some of the benefits of a pirate site, but you're actually legally reading the manga <laughs> and supporting the creators. So I, I actually do want to ask, where does the name Azuki come from? So it's a Japanese word that refers to red beans, the little beans that are used to make red bean paste, the sweet paste that is in yeah. often in mochi is where people would often see it. We came up with a lot of different name ideas, but we liked the idea of a manga cafe and kind of like snacks that you would be eating while you're reading manga. And we just thought it was like a really cute name that it's Japanese, but it's not like so hard to pronounce in English. <laughs> so it kind of yeah. works. It's like nice and short. <laughs> and we also didn't want to just put manga in the name, I guess. I thought we kind of thought it was <laughs> nice to have something that's a little bit more abstract. <laughs> How was that transition for you then from, I mean, you've always worn a ton of different hats. I feel like we've hit on that a lot throughout this podcast already, but was it a difficult transition actually to go from your work at Crunchyroll and your freelance work and the non-anime stuff you did and the podcast to then, you know, building out a full company as employee number two, as you said, but how was that transition? Yeah, that, that is tough. I had yeah. done <laughs> podcasting, right? And I had, uh, you know, gotten up on stage and presented stuff. I had emceed events, but I had not like, been a marketing manager. So there's a lot that goes on in that job, it turns out, that is not stuff that I had ever done before, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I had never just like run a whole marketing campaign, right? Created a bunch of like marketing assets and set up Google and Facebook ads and things, right? There's all these different parts of that job that other people did at Crunchyroll that I never had to think about. Uh, so yeah, like a lot of it is the kind of business side and marketing side, licensing. I had never done licensing before learning about the contracts and a lot of spreadsheets. My job has so many spreadsheets in Google Docs now, which is not exactly my favorite part. Uh, doing like, you know, revenue projections and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> to be honest, yeah, I'm not going to say it's great because it's not exactly what I like wanted to be doing, but it is what someone needs to do so that we can do the part that we actually like, which is putting out manga for people. Yeah. To As read. you said earlier, it's not the sexy anime industry job that everyone has in mind, but yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, to, I haven't really touched on that exactly, but when, you know, people often young people are like, man, I want to work in the anime industry. They think they're going to be watching anime all day. No, <laughs> you're going to end up working at a spreadsheet farm like everybody else, but the <laughs> spreadsheet says Naruto on it. <laughs> So you did just mention licensing, which leads me to want to ask, can you give us sort of a broad idea for someone that might really not know or might not read a lot of manga or not know a lot about the industry? How does the manga industry actually function from things like, you know, the mangaka actually creating the work to us being able to read it on Azuki and all of the steps that sort of go in between? That's a huge question. <laughs> so let me try to do it briefly. Yeah. 
So the way the manga industry works is you generally have like, you know, it starts with the creator. That's really simplifying it to say that it starts with the creator, but you, you've got the usually one or two creators, right? Sometimes a writer and artist or just a single uh, writer artist, one person. Let's ignore the part before they debut. If they're already being published by a magazine, they'll be working with the editor from their magazine and putting together the latest chapter. The editor often is pretty involved in that. So they're almost sometimes like a co-writer. I don't know all of the production stuff on the Japan side. I can't exactly give mm-hmm. you like a confident answer there. I guess I'll probably get some stuff wrong. I haven't worked on that end of it. But they release them serialized in magazines every week or month or whatever the cadence of the magazine is. Depends on what magazine the author is published in. And from there, there are international rights people at these publishers Usually, I think at some very small publishers, they might not have like a dedicated international rights department, but they will kind of field questions from abroad about like, okay, who's interested in what from this magazine? Also, I should mention in case people aren't familiar with this, there's the serialization in the magazine, and then they will get compiled into Tonkoban into these these, uh, volume releases, which is how you typically see manga released here in the U.S., those are the actual books that you buy. Whereas the magazines are a little bit more disposable, kind of like just a quick way to read it. And you don't necessarily like collect those. Some people do, but it's not yeah. necessarily a collectible. Yeah, then the international rights people will kind of field questions. To my knowledge, they are typically not soliciting licensors for titles. Uh, they might do it. If they have an existing relationship with a the publisher. They might solicit that publisher and say, hey, do you want to release this? But typically they are waiting for people to ask them for the vast majority of titles. You contact them. If you don't have a relationship with them, you have to convince them that your company is like good and worth them trusting with their manga, right? Because they don't want to just give it to some fly-by-night company. They want to make sure they'll make money on it, that it'll be presented correctly. It's not going to ruin the brand for that series or whatever. And uh, yeah, you have to make a proposal, say that we want to do it. Here's what we want to do with it. We want to do print or ebook, or we want to put it on a streaming service and get sign on from them, figure out all the terms of how revenue is shared. What percentage of the revenue do they get? What's their cut of the, the book sales or the subscription revenue? And in the case of subscription, how is that calculated, right? Based on page reads or, or some other metric. Um, yeah. And then you get the contract signed and then you have to also do all the the materials delivery. So they have to actually get you the PDFs or other formats for the the files. And then you do localization. (laughs) So you give those materials to translators and letterers and QC people, and they compile the English version. If you're lucky, as we are with our first series, they have digital files. They have layers. That's great, right? They have an InDesign (laughs) file where you can just take out the Japanese and sub in the English. Much better uh, than the scenario where they don't have digital masters for them and you need to actually masters might not be the term but it's basically like a digital master in in video right if they don't have the digital ones they might need to scan the book or you might need to scan the book which we've never had to do but other publishers have had to do (laughs) i was gonna ask if you've had to scan books before (laughs) no so i've never i've never had to do that aspect that aspect of it but i have heard stories yeah and uh you package all that up and then there's a bunch of steps that i'm not familiar with on the print end because we don't do print Uh, but there's a lot there about sending it to printers. I encourage you to interview somebody who does that side (laughs) of it because that's a very interesting story, especially nowadays with all of the supply chain issues around printing that we thankfully 
don't have to deal with, but all of our publisher friends do. I think that covers a lot of it in very broad strokes. Does that help answer your question? (laughs) That's super helpful. (laughs) So as the head of licensing, you're interacting a lot with publishers, I'm assuming. And have you found that publishers are enthusiastic about having their works put on a subscription service? Or is it something that they're still a little hesitant about? I would say it depends on the publisher, but there's a lot of hesitance still about. I think digital in general is more kind of like people are getting used to that. It's more popular in Japan now. Uh, It's been growing significantly in popularity. But a lot of publishers are very comfortable with like a coin-based model, right? Because it's a pretty guaranteed like, okay, you sell a chapter, you get a certain amount of money. It's a little little tough there. And also, to my knowledge, I think creators are a little skeptical. And in the the publisher-creator relationship in manga, creators have a lot of power. And they can basically like veto anything about it. They can say, I don't want this out in digital at all. I don't want this on subscription services, right? Something that does happen sometimes, either from the publisher or the creator, is they might say, I don't want it in digital unless it's also going to print, right? Because I don't, I don't want this to be a digital-only release. I, I, this deserves a print release, right? And so it, sometimes like the other release is held hostage to the print release. So there's definitely some friction there. That's been a challenge for us is we really believe that the subscription model is, is a good one for fans and that like by getting more fans in, it actually is ultimately good for publishers and creators. But that can be tough because it's a promise for the future that it's like this is going to work out for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a risk and not everybody wants to take that risk, right? Understandably, because they want to protect their, their series. You mentioned that in Japan, digital is becoming more popular and more common for people to read out of. What is the landscape of that in Japan and in the West? Like, are people still mostly reading out of physical magazines? And how is that shift taking place to to volumes into digital? How does that compare with what's happening in the West? I actually can't really give you numbers on the, the Japanese side, but my understanding is just that there is like a significantly growing portion of of sales from digital from from apps and things virtually every publisher in japan now is running their own app or mm-hmm. putting their their manga onto an app uh, webtoons are popular everywhere right so that's like totally blowing up uh we, we all live in new york city i'm sure you've been inundated with the webtoons ads yes. the line <laughs> webtoon ads on the subways <laughs> yes with the slightly weird uh <laughs> ad copy <laughs> Yeah, when are we getting the when are we getting the Azuki NYC subway ad? I don't even want to think about how yeah. much those MTA ads yeah. cost. <laughs> yeah, especially with the amount of coverage that that Webtoon has, they're like doing takeovers in multiple subway stations. It's got to be very yeah. expensive. Yeah, right. And here, uh, I think this is not secret information because people have talked about this in public, but. You might think that digital would have spiked during COVID, but it was the opposite. I think digital stayed mm-hmm. mostly the same. It might have dipped a little bit, but print spiked like crazy yeah, for manga. Yeah. yeah. And I would have thought digital would have spiked because people were staying home. But I think what happened is people didn't need digital as much because they didn't need to go on like the train or, you know, or the bus or whatever. And so they could just like sit at home and read a book. And more importantly, there's been a general increase in interest in collectibles Hmm. uh, across like every market, right? So retro video games, baseball cards, virtually anything that you would like build a collection of, the prices have spiked and the demand has spiked post-COVID or like during slash post-COVID. And so I think manga 
is subject to the same thing where like people are building collections. And so there's just like, bam, tons of people now want manga, <laughs> want manga on their shelf, right? They want to buy print manga. And that has, that plus the supply chain stuff has resulted in the print yeah. shortages. <laughs> yeah. So we talked at length with Van Oba about what individuals can do to financially support animators in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I think Azuki is a means for readers to financially support mangakas or publishers. Can you talk a little bit about the financial support process? Like, how does paying for Azuki help to support mangakas or publishers or people in Japan? Yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. Uh, you pay us a subscription fee. We There's obviously some splitting of, like, the publisher share versus Azuki share because we need to, like, pay for our servers and staff and things. Yeah. And then... The, but the publishers, I, I can't give you like the exact number, but the publishers get a significant share of that. And then that amount of your subscription, it's on an individual, it's a per user model. So it's on an individual user level is then split up based on what you read. And again, I can't give, I can't really get into the exact formula, but generally like the way you can think about it is if you read more of a series, more of your money goes to that series. So that's kind of like easy to conceptualize is like you are sort of distributing your money based on what you read. We think that's pretty fair to publishers. It's pretty transparent. All the publishers kind of know that if they get more readership, they will get more of the revenue. And it also avoids something that some other platforms have as a bit of an issue with subscription, which is it doesn't put everybody into the same pool. So if you are an individual user who really likes indie manga and you only read indie manga, your money only goes to indie manga publishers. It doesn't get like diluted by the existence of Eden Zero Mm -hmm. or whatever. So publishers who build a loyal audience can get a loyal set of subscription from it. I I think that's like a fair way to do it. (laughs) That doesn't doesn't make like little publishers have to compete unnecessarily with big publishers, like where, where there's not actual competition going on. Yeah. Maybe this is a naive question, but as someone who's pretty familiar with the anime space. I think growing up in the 2000s, we were also very familiar with anime piracy and the conflict between Mm -hmm. illegal streaming and legal avenues like Crunchyroll. How much of a problem is this within the manga space? And how does legal streaming services like Azuki actually impact this? I mean, it's a huge problem in manga. I think it's a bit of a declining problem in anime in part thanks to streaming services that's why we're doing a streaming service <laughs> i think you know we definitely think that like i in this case i'm kind of speaking for azuki more generally is like we think that that helped a lot with anime with like moving people off of piracy and showing them that there's an easy way to support creators and it's still huge in manga there's there's tons of pirate sites that i won't name do not go to them please read on <laughs> Even if you're not reading on Azuki, read legally or digitally or print or whatever. Read it read it legally from, from any of the many <laughs> platforms or publishers out there. And uh, yeah, it's it's still, there's a lot. I, you know, we did some research on it. And, and anecdotally, anybody in the manga fandom knows this, that there's like just a huge audience of people who pretty much exclusively read on pirate sites. And what makes it difficult in manga is there's just a lot of manga. And even with yeah. the spike in things getting licensed nowadays from U.S. publishers, like we're, we're in a bit of a golden age for manga, it's just impossible to cover everything. You're not going to release every like weird salaryman manga in English, as much as I would love to have all of them available in English. Yeah, yeah. 
So you mentioned that you do a lot of spreadsheets, but what does your actual day-to-day look like working for Azuki? And more importantly, how does the process look like from reading or seeing a manga in Japanese and saying, oh, I might want to license that or put that on the service? And how do you then try to tackle getting it actually on Azuki? Okay, first part, day-to-day. Totally depends because I do a million things and not just me, I'm not trying to like take credit here. The whole team does a million things because we're so small. A lot of times I am sending emails, writing marketing plans, doing a lot of like docs. Yeah, so I might be doing right now I'm doing some kind of revenue projections for a thing that we're trying to do. Yeah, so it's a lot of that and it'll really just depend on what I'm doing that day, right? I don't, it's not really much of a routine. It's kind of like, all right, what what's on the docket today? I also kind of like review our social media stuff. We have a a contractor who helps with that, but I still kind of review stuff. But then sometimes I'm doing development work or design work. And so then I'm in like Figma or I'm opening up a code editor and actually doing like front end website development. So that's like a totally different job. I think that covers most of it. Yeah, and we do some meetings. We're not like super meeting heavy, but we we do a weekly meeting where we like prioritize and plan out what we're going to do for the next week. That's like the best I can tell you for the day-to-day. I mean, it's a job. It's not, we don't have an office, so I'm sitting right here. Uh, You can't see, you guys can see, but it's not going to be in the podcast, (laughs) but like I'm just in my apartment. So we're all remote. Uh, Most of the team is in San Francisco. It's a great red line poster in the background. Uh, Yeah, the red line poster. I got to get it framed, but it's a weird, weird size. Big fan (laughs) of red line. Um, Yeah, so we're all remote. So I'm either sitting here in my apartment or I'm at a coffee shop or something. Uh, we don't have an office. It's really not. I don't know when we would ever have an office. We'd probably have to get pretty big because we're like a pandemic company. It's kind of like you yeah. you start in this remote world and then you're kind of like, do I need an office? Really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah we, but the we, fact that you have to question, does that cover all my jobs is is mind boggling to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you all must be doing so much. I mean, the story I keep telling people that highlights it even better than me saying like, I do spreadsheets and I write code, which is not doesn't sound that impressive, honestly, uh, is <laughs> our production manager and the basically editor for our new series, Hikaru in the Light, which you should read. It's very good. It's about idols. Our editor for that is uh, a team member of ours, Adela Chang, who is also our iOS developer. <laughs> that gives you a real sense of the different yeah. hats being worn here. It's like yeah. building an iOS feature and then like making sure that the latest chapter of Hikaru is uh, translated correctly. <laughs> Your other question was, what's the process of licensing? Basically, we read a lot of manga. It's not just me. It's also two other team members who have varying levels of Japanese ability. So... We have one team member who's fluent in Japanese, very helpful. We have me and one other team member who are, we can get by. We can kind of like slowly decipher a manga. So we will kind of just dig through publisher websites and buy magazines digitally and things like that. And just kind of like look at what's out there. We might target a specific publisher and say, let's see what they're releasing lately and see you know which ones cross check which ones have been licensed and which ones haven't and do we like it right is it like a good manga that we think people would want to read and uh yeah there's there are two separate questions there to be clear for people who haven't done this before there's do i like it and would people read it and those are not necessarily always the same (laughs) answer (laughs) my buddy uh dallas midaw who now works at humble bundle has this line that I always remember, and I think a lot of other people have, I've heard other people in the industry repeat it. It's like a a famous Dallas saying, and it's just like, 
he will say, oh, I really like this manga. That means it's not going to sell. Like it's the it's like the kiss of death. It's like if da- Dallas has it's like I think the curse of good taste is what I've heard people call it. Right. <laughs> like if he likes it, it must not be popular. Right. Um, so that's so how I feel talking to Yanni on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you're making fun of me or yourself, to be honest. It was more self-deprecating, but it was okay, for either of us, I guess. Good. But yeah, you, you have to kind of like take yourself out of your your fan brain, right? So on a certain level, you want to just get that gut feeling of like, do I think it's good, right? Because that, that is useful. Because if, if you think it's good, it means you can market it, right? For me as a marketing person, I need to find something I like about it so I can kind of like build the pearl around that grain of sand. <laughs> but then you also have to be like, okay, but do I like it because I am a freak who's into this particular stuff? <laughs> Right. Or is it something where I could find other people who would actually want to read this? We all have that anime or manga, I guess, in your case, where it's like, I really like this, but I don't know if I'd recommend it to people. Right. I would recommend it, but I don't know if I would bet the farm on it. That's a different question. You're actually putting money where your mouth is. Yeah. Beyond that, we need to actually contact the publisher. So we might not, in some cases, might not have a relationship with them yet. So we have to actually get them on board with licensing anything to us, period. And, you know, kind of talk to them about what our company is, all that process I mentioned before. And then, yeah, it's basically about the same process from there. And the decision is just looking at the kind of gut feeling of is it good and can we sell it? But then also like finding uh, comparisons, right? Comparable series that are like, okay, it's it's about this kind of stuff. It has this kind of art style that appeals to this kind of audience. What's a series that's like in the same wheelhouse? And how did that do? Is that popular? That can help. We can compare with series that are on Azuki to see what's the readership like compared to other stuff. Or we can just compare with like sales elsewhere. And that helps with marketing too. If you know a good comparison, you can say stuff like you should read The Yakuza's Guide to Babysitting if you're a fan of Spy Family, which is true because they have very similar (laughs) appeals if you're into that kind of like uh, scary adult man finding his soft side raising a little girl. (laughs) Do you feel like Azuki's at the point yet where you have publishers reaching out to you to license items for them? Or is it mostly you reaching out to them to try and get it so far? Uh, we've had that happen occasionally. But uh, yeah, generally, we're still young enough that we need to be kind of making the case. We're not like huge and famous. We're not like Crunchyroll where everybody's heard of us, right? So we we need to be teaching people who we are. And, you know, they might say, oh, I haven't heard of you. And that that means we need to we need to do the pitch. Mm-hmm. And that follows up nicely into... How would you like to see Azuki expand in the future? And do you have any goals and plans for the immediate future that that you can share with us? Well, I can't share you anything that's like a secret. But <laughs> I mean, our plans, I will say, and we've said this publicly, more manga. So we I mentioned many times here, we've licensed our first manga directly, which is why we can talk about all of this publicly now. It's called Hikaru in the Light. And it's this great, really sweet, inspirational story about a girl trying to become an idol, joining this kind of survival camp where only the best will make it to the end of it. And we are planning to license more where that came from. So we we have some stuff that we'll hopefully be able to announce soon. And we are furiously reading through all that manga that I mentioned to, to try to find new stuff to get. So that's a big focus going forward is uh, in addition to having stuff in our catalog from English publishers, like the the English stuff from Kanacha that we got from Starfruit Books, Glacier Bay Books, that's stuff that's being produced by other publishers, right? Not We're not doing the localization on that. 
we are working to have like a lot more stuff that is exclusive to Azuki that we are bringing to English for the first time because we really want that to be like a unique benefit of being a premium member on Azuki, right? Is to is to have stuff that you can't really get anywhere else and that we're sort of curating for you, right? That we've we've handpicked. That's the big the big focus and where I'd like to see it go is I'd like to have I'd like us to have a lot more manga personally I would like us to, you know, be able to have a really wide range because I just and that's what I find so interesting about manga is is having that genre diversity. So that's what we're aiming for right now. And that's what I would like to see is is to be able to, in the way we have right now with the, the catalog, with all of our new stuff to also be able to be like, okay, whatever you're into, we've got something for you. <laughs> all right. So we should maybe transition into your three by three. If you haven't been with us for a podcast before, for a guest episode, we do this with every single one of our guests where we just have them give us our anime three by three and then have a short little discussion about whatever is interesting to us, whatever they want to talk about. If you don't know what an anime or manga 3x3 is, it's just a collection of nine titles that are supposed to be indicative of your taste in anime or manga. We'll put together Evans in some nice graphic format to put up on Twitter as we usually do uh, after each guest episode. So go for it. All right. As I mentioned in the pre-show, I kind of procrastinated and did not give I did not put together a full anime three by three what I have is a giant list of things that I like jogged my memory on that are things I like but what I'm going to do is try to pick from them in real time which is maybe a little more fun so that sounds great because usually we get the opposite where people are like I struggled yeah. so hard with this and I really carefully picked exactly which one and if you asked me on a different day I'd have a completely different set of nine but I like this real time bit we're doing okay so I also, for a caveat here, I'm, I'm a pretty strong believer in this, is like when you ask what is like my favorite whatever of all time, I think stuff that came out in the last five years, not allowed. Like I need time <laughs> to sit on it. I need time to like really think, does this deserve to go in like the all-time best list? So, you know, there's some great stuff that I've seen recently, like Odd Taxi that is like, sorry, Odd Taxi's not allowed in yet. Ranking of Kings, not allowed in the list. Great show. Highly <laughs> recommended. Uh, so... Let's see. Uh, I have to include something from Satoshi Kon. So I'm going to say Millennium Actress, which is the best movie ever made. Not just anime movie. Just the best movie, period. Uh, Millennium Actress is amazing. It's so good. It's it's his his best uh, by a long shot. I mean, it's the best movie ever. (laughs) Oh, okay. What do we think is the best? (laughs) I like Perfect Blue better, personally. But Millennium Actress is my second. (laughs) Perfect Blue is a great choice. Don't love the ending. I think it's a little too neat and tidy. Mm. That's my problem with Mm. it. But uh, yeah, I, I do really love Millennium Actress, though, and definitely the, my, yeah. my, would be my second pick. And we did a whole Satoshi Kon episode, so we're, we're both huge Cool. Fans. All right. Men of taste. Uh, <laughs> Millennium Actress. Let's Men see. Let's culture. see. I'm going to I'm I'm going to give him a spot, even though he has gone downhill ever since. Five centimeters per second. Really big fan of that. Movie. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> I think that's like his best. Uh, also, you know, like all of these are best. Right. But that's uh, I, I have a really strong connection to that movie i really love the the subtle message that everybody misses at the end of that movie about what it's like actually about uh that even it seems that shinkai has missed in his subsequent movies <laughs> uh let's see let's see so i take it you're not a big your name or weathering with you person well whether have you met a weathering with you person <laughs> 
I don't hate weathering with you personally. Okay. <laughs> I, I do. I will say, I have to say nice things because now I'm a marketing person, so I can't be too mean. But uh, I will say the one really good thing about weathering with you is that hamburger, which is like one of the best <laughs> animated hamburgers I've ever seen. <laughs> Your name I do really like, and I think it's sort of a, a very good version of the Shinkai formula exactly. I think weathering with you is worse, but... Oh, whether, yeah, it's, it's, I have some issues with your name, but I think overall, yeah. I, I respect your name, but I don't <laughs> super enjoy like the latter half or so of your name. I think the first half is, is pretty good. Uh, okay. Okay. So talking about movies, I'm a big movie fan. I don't necessarily always have the patience to watch like long anime series. Uh, I'm going to try before I go to like the really unhinged uh rows of this thing i'm gonna try to do some more stuff that makes me seem like i have good taste um wait no we want the unhinged no but i'm gonna save the unhinged stuff i will say man i'm gonna skip miyazaki for now even though i love a lot of miyazaki but it's just it's too basic i'll put in this corner of the world on the list great movie oh nice um wow okay yeah okay got some of the serious stuff out of the way let's (laughs) go let's go like full full unhinged here uh we're gonna do inferno cop on the list wow okay yeah inferno cop is one of the best anime comedies ever made uh (laughs) extremely powerful cartoon have you guys you guys have you seen inferno cop you know i have not i have not i just heard of it oh i watched a little bit because it came up in our trigger episode yeah it's trigger's first anime you need to watch the whole thing. You need to get to the part where like the pregnant woman shows back up and now she's dressed like Scarlet Witch. You need to get to the part where they go back in time and there's dinosaurs and like they become gods. That sounds like every trigger show. It's, it's excellent. It's like the the most trigger show. Uh, let's see. Have you seen Panty and Stocking with Garter Bell? It's I already gave those guys a spot on here, so Panning and Stocking's probably not going to make it, but it's also like okay. uh, one of the all-time best. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm Okay, I'm, I'm trying to convince Yanni to watch it still. Watch it dubbed. The dub takes a lot of liberties with- Thank you. Yeah, it's very funny. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've heard a story about that where they- Can I swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, not everybody allows it. We couldn't do it on Crunchycast. Uh, we got explicit tag, so- Okay, so- uh, the the story I've heard from, uh, I think it's Jamie Marshy, who I think is the writer or director, like the ADR director and plays um, Panty on that show, is that they they got the scripts from Japan and they're like, or, you know, they're watching the show and they're like, man, this is like, they say fuck in English a lot. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Do you want us to like just do it in English? Do you want us to like change it or something? And supposedly the instruction they got was, Add more. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that dub is one of my favorite dubs of yeah. all time. I'm I will say honest. not all of it has aged super well in terms of some no, language it has uses. It, it yeah. hasn't. <laughs> it is very specific humor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Gouda Gouda Fairies. If you haven't seen Inferno Cop, you probably haven't seen Gouda Gouda Fairies. I don't even I know what that is. I have heard of this. <laughs> oh, all right. So it's spelled G-D-G-D as you'll hear when they do the the opening song, but it's pronounced Gouda Gouda. It's animated in, uh, I think it's, it's either Miku Miku Dance or something that looks a lot like it. It's like really oh lo-fi God. 3D animation, and it's kind of like borders on anti-comedy at times, uh, where it's like very, very non-sequitur stuff. 
And most notably, the the animators use a bunch of like open source assets in it. So there will just be like a really <laughs> shitty looking monkey or whatever <laughs> that they skinned with something. Uh, and it, ha- it has a bunch of improv segments where the voice actors have to improv based on the animation produced by the animators who are not telling them what they're <laughs> going to produce before they show it to them. What comparison would you make that if, if people like something else, they should check this out? Is there a comparison? No, because the only other comparisons <laughs> okay. I can think of are weirder, are like offshoots <laughs> from Gouda Gouda Fairies. Okay. I mean, maybe if you like like the daily lives of high school boys, that might be close. Mm. Uh but I think it's basically like the best comparison I can make for uh, for most of these shows. It's it's really like if you liked something like The Daily Lives of High School Boys and you've watched too much anime and you kind of can't get the high anymore from watching like Demon Slayer or something because it's too normal, then you're yep. ready. Then it's like you need to level up to the next level. <laughs> Uh, and I will put as the third in the trifecta of these shows, uh, this is my third row and the three by three, is uh, Take You, which you probably also have not seen yet, considering no, no. this is the, the layer for stuff that you haven't watched. Uh, Take You ran for like nine seasons. It's all on Crunchyroll. It is an nine anime seasons. about a bunch of high school girls playing tennis, which is like, okay, everything's about that. Cute girls doing cute things. The difference is it has the same number of jokes as any of those shows, but each episode is two and a half minutes long, about 30 to 45 seconds of which is the opening. And so it is <laughs> lightning speed. <laughs> Just joke, 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 ending. <laughs> well, if you don't have the patience to sit through a full series, like you That's said, right. this sounds perfect. <laughs> I only have the patience to sit through an episode if it has a burger. It's either full movies or two yeah. minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very very good, uh, and you know will make you feel like you're going insane, like if you <laughs> if you marathon too much of it, <laughs> which is all my favorite stuff is stuff that makes you feel like you're going insane. <laughs> all right, okay. So the bottom the bottoms here, I'm probably going to go back a little bit more to normal here. I will say Fooly Cooly gets on the list. Uh, that's more kind of it's not trigger, but it's a lot of those those folks. It's one of the the not the first things they did, but it's kind of where they really like grew into their style uh, at Gynax. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I really like about it is how freewheeling it is creatively, where each episode has like a different director and they kind of let the animators go wild, which people say about a lot of shows, but is usually not true. Like people will be like, mm-hmm. oh, it seems like they let the animators go wild, but it's often a little bit more of like a calculated kind of like, yeah. oh, this is the style we want here. Uh, but Fooly Cooly, as I have been told was really something where like the series director kind of just went like well whatever just do what you want like i got some ideas here i got a rough idea i'll check in but it's kind of like go go wild with each of these episodes since a lot of trigger adjacent stuff has come up how do you feel about triggers newer stuff so i'm a huge fan of trigger uh i have uh like hosted panels with them before and stuff like that i'm i'm friends with some of those guys i used to say they were like the some of the only people doing like really interesting stuff. But I think there's a lot of studios now who have really like kind of uh, upped their game. But what I really admire about them is their commitment to doing what they want, which I think was kind of honed at Gainax. Like they are to my eyes, like the, the actual successors to the, the creative spirit of Gainax, even though there are other people who could lay claim to that, like Ano and, and studio Kara. Right. Uh, I think that like, 
I, it, fe- it feels like what Kara is doing is a little different. It's kind of an evolution yeah. of that, like based on kind of where Anno and his his friends are at his age. But uh, I feel like Trigger really captured. Uh, you know, I uh, sorry, someone's going to get mad at me for that. I think <laughs> Anno and Kara maybe represents maybe the older school Gynax uh, vibe. But I think that there was yeah. there was something Gynax was doing like post Fooly Cooly that really like the yeah. the Trigger folks are carrying that torch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of their like output as a studio, I will say I think some of it is uh, I'm not a fan of everything, uh, but that's but I am a fan of everything that they have done that is theirs. So some of the kind of work for hire or adaptation stuff, maybe a little bit to their credit, though I'm sure that some of the folks they have worked with were not happy about this. I think they kind of uh, don't put the the big hitters on them and kind of go like, okay, yeah, we'll make a show for you. Uh, but when yeah. it's their baby, like they they always go all out and they yeah. put like everybody on it, right? It's like, oh, Imaishi and Yoshinari and Sushio and yeah. Kayama yeah, and yeah, like yeah. they throw they throw everybody at it. So like Promare yeah. is a good example and Kill La Kill, Luluko, which that's always the best example because that was produced the same season as Keys Naiver, which is like a kind of, not exactly a work for hire, but it's, Definitely like a Mario Kata joint more than yeah. it's a trigger joint. And they put yeah. the junior animators on Keys Naiver. And the, this little like half length or was it seven, seven minutes or something? 14 minutes. I forget how long each episode is for Luluco. But these like these short episodes that were like had significantly lower production value, I think, in terms of like how much just how much money was spent. That was the show that got Imaishi and Yoshinari and just like all of the yeah. big <laughs> animators yeah. and stuff. Because that was their baby. Yeah. No, like I just mentioned, we we just did a whole Trigger episode, which is the reason that I that I asked the question. Both of us have specific series we like from Trigger, but we're not necessarily fans of the entire catalog. But definitely the one through line is, A, just how much they commit to doing exactly what they want. And yeah. that's something that's really, I think, praiseworthy. And also, you even said you've hosted stuff with them. The way they interface and yes. interact with their fans abroad is pretty amazing that you don't really see a lot of other studios doing. That, you got to give credit to Tatsuru Tatemoto, Tatsun, who grew up in the US. I uh, grew up in LA. I think you can credit, you know, Imaishi and and Koyama and Wakabayashi, especially uh, those two for, yeah. for being a big part of that. But I think Tatsun is is such an important glue there of being like, you know, here's what Americans want. Here's the kind of stuff that they're going to like. And even just recognizing that like, you got to put Wakabayashi and Koyama in front of people. Like they're a lot of fun. That's going to like build this kind of image of the studio. So I don't know if you guys are familiar, but the Tatsuru Tatemoto is their PR guy who does all their live streams and, and yeah. translates it all their panels. Yeah. Uh, in terms of my favorite stuff, I think Kill La Kill is hard to beat. That's like Thank you. a show that I mean, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> it's also it has it has an asterisk on it of like, uh, I, yeah. you know, if someone yeah. says, especially if like a woman says I'm not comfortable yeah. with the level of nudity in that, I'm yeah. like, you know what? That is 100 yeah. percent fair. Like, yeah, uh, I would recommend <laughs> I, it, but I'm not going to push it too hard. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty much exactly what I said on the, yeah. on the trigger podcast. Uh, but uh, but that show, like the energy of it is is so great. And you can credit that not just to Trigger itself, but also to Kazuki Nakashima, who's the writer of that series and also the writer of Gurren Lagan and Promare. And I think it's that Imaishi Nakashima combo that people are usually thinking of when they think of like that really great Trigger energy. Anyway, I could talk about them a lot. I've done <laughs> I've done panels on them and with them. So yeah, they're, they're my favorite anime studio by far. Yeah. Oh, we should have had you on for the trigger episode, apparently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. 
Man, okay, okay, okay. Uh, maybe I already picked a, a Gynax thing. So something that's like pretty influential on me. I think it's a great show, but also, you know, has a special place in my heart. Serial Experiments Lane, which I watched when I was getting nice. into anime and, and is still one of my favorites. And I think... That was actually my shout out for one of the most underrated anime. Cool. If you watch it now, you will be like, wow, this really predicts a lot of the kind of philosophy of the, the internet age, right. even though it yeah. was pretty relatively early. It's like it's in the middle of the, the you know, early internet, but before like a lot of the stuff that happened nowadays. All right, I need one more, one more. I feel like I picked a lot of stuff in the same kind of vibe here. So I'm going to pick something that's a little bit like a period piece of some sort. I will give it to Bacano. Out of print. Great show. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Sub or the dub? Oh, I think the dub's pretty good, but I don't really remember which one I watched. Uh, I'd probably just watch it subbed nowadays, but... Uh, the dub I, is so good, yeah. Have you read the uh, source material for Bacano? No, I have the I have the first novel the on my novels, shelf. Right? Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, really big fan of that show. It's just such a, such a tight narrative... And like, I love the, I love kind of any ensemble. I'm a really big fan of ensemble casts. Uh, I like yeah. Guy Ritchie movies, which it's obviously doing like a snatch mm-hmm. rip. That's a big fan of that. I didn't, I didn't say Cowboy Bebop in there, but Bacchano is taking the spot Cowboy Bebop would be in, which yeah, can't, can't have them all. It's only nine anime. So. So you're actually one of the first people we've had on that's more manga centric, I think, than anime centric, at least recently. So Kind of rapid fire. Do you have a top three manga that you can Oh, I have uh, to pick these? Oh, okay. Off the top of my head. (laughs) I actually am, to be honest, I'm a little bit more personally, I probably watched more anime than read manga, to be honest. But I've read, you know, read a lot of manga also. Uh, Manga off the top of my head. Blackjack. All time favorite. From Osamu Tezuka. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. It's about an unlicensed surgeon. Also, Tezuka related Pluto. Those are kind of tied for my favorite manga of all time. uh, Based on the, the... Astro Boy story, uh, and it's an adaptation by Naoki Urasawa from Monster and 20th Century Boys. Uh, okay, safe picks, safe picks. Those are both safe picks. I know they're like just classic manga. So <laughs> Evan is literally looking at his manga shelf I right am, now for any people that can't see this. You know, I actually haven't read it all the way to completion, but I will give props to Dragon Ball, uh, which I have wow. on my shelf, and I need to okay. go back and read like the whole thing, uh, but. I just, uh, Toriyama's like composition and fight choreography is insane. And there's like a reason why every shonen manga after is made in the image of that manga. Uh, he really is like the prototype. Uh, I'm going to uh, give a spot to Ron Mahaff, which I, uh, am a, I'm very fond of. Uh, I, again, just sort of like classic prototype for, for like shonen rom-coms. Uh, and I think it's the best of Takahashi that I've read Though I actually haven't really read, uh, there's some other stuff, some other stuff from her that I really should be reading, uh, and reading more of, yeah. like Masoni Koku. I wanted to ask something that we ask uh, everybody that comes on the podcast. So sorry, now I'm like switching you back yeah, to anime. I think I'm three at four out of nine. So <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, 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 no. I already said top three, so you can keep. Oh, going you said top three, right? so I already did. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I did top three. Okay, great. Uh, no, but coming back to your uh, anime three by three, do you think there's anything that sort of ties your anime taste together or some like global view you can give us of what anime really resonates with you. I think that it's a particularly interesting question for you since you kind of picked them 
live on air, so you haven't had time to think about this at all, but... Okay, well, there's not one thing, because I have a bunch of different stuff I'm interested in. So I would say there's kind of two broad categories of like the kind of serious stuff is like I just am always interested in stuff that has a sort of like emotional or or political kind of complexity to it, uh, which is really pretty broad. But I, I, you know, I do especially when there's stuff that's kind of like the good parts of Code Geass or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, like that. Very important caveat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the kind of stuff that, it, that appeals to me on that end. Or also kind of like stuff like five centimeters per second that's really introspective and really like gets into a character's head. And then on the other side is stuff that's just completely unhinged, which is why I like Trigger and all of that weird stuff like uh, like Guda Guda Fairies and Take You is I just really like when a creator is do, going the opposite, the total opposite end of that kind of like pretentious human drama. And it's just like, whatever, there's like a shark detective and his sidekick is a sex doll. That's a trigger <laughs> short, which you should watch if you haven't. His sidekick is a, a giant ape who turns into the Hulk, and then his other sidekick is a talking sex doll named Sex Setchan. That's a sex. It sounds like an absolute fever dream. My it's God. Called sex and Violence with Mock Speed. It's a sort of spiritual successor to uh, Penny and Stocking with Garter Belt. That's right up Robert right. Alley. So. That's, that's top of my list now. Let's go. Yeah. So it's just that stuff like that that's like really just going wild that I, I really enjoy. And I think part of that does come from being overexposed to anime where you need it to be weirder because like I need it to be weirder. You know, it's kind of like, all right, I've seen the normal stuff. I need, you got to like really <laughs> go out there. My man's built up a tolerance. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what it is. It's building up a tolerance. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're getting pretty close to wrapping up. So Evan, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Shout out, plug, go check out Azuki, obviously, but anything else? Uh, I hope I didn't take too long. I, I, I feel no, like I talked too this much. This is absolutely this is on a shorter is... end, actually. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I know I know what that feels like as the as a uh, host of a show that always runs too long. So, yeah. In terms of stuff to plug, uh, check out Azuki. A z u k i dot c o is the website, and we have uh, full reading and discovery and sign up experience on web as well as in the iOS App Store and the Google Play Store. Uh, you can read it on your phone, tablet, computer, whatever you want. Let's see. That's that's the Azuki stuff. Oh, follow us also. Read Azuki on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And uh, in terms of other Evan stuff, I'm on Twitter at Vamptvo, V-A-M-P-T-V-O. And I and the things I tweet there do not represent Azuki or its affiliates. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also uh, co-host the Anagamers podcast, uh, and we write blog posts and things. We have a Patreon over there. That's AniGamers, A-N-I-Gamers.com. We put out episodes every two weeks talking about anime, manga, and games, though I don't review manga anymore because it's a conflict of interest, but my co-host does. <laughs> uh, yeah, check that out. If you like all this, if you like me talking for too long, you're going to really <laughs> enjoy that. And uh, I write for, uh, nowadays I still occasionally do articles for Anime News Network and I have a, a back catalog of articles I've written there, including uh, I did one recently about dubbing in the anime industry, which I would recommend people check out. And also a big, big back catalog of Otaku USA articles that I've written in. You can read them in back catalogs of the magazine or in the uh, on the website. So a lot of uh, anime and manga reviews and features and things. I think that covers most of my stuff uh thank you guys so much this is a lot of fun absolutely yeah thanks so much for coming on the podcast i'm i'm glad we could 
finally make this happen and that uh, you were able to make some time for us. That's We've been looking forward to having you on for a while. So as Evan mentioned, check out all the stuff he just plugged, which was a lot because that was the theme of this podcast. Our next podcast, we're going to be talking about underrated anime and what underrated anime even means. Ravi, we already recorded that and Ravi already spoiled one of his picks, but you know what? That's fine. Like there's no podcast continuity anymore. So now I need to, in the post show, I want to hear what your underrated picks are, but you don't have to spoil okay. it for the audience. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to be disappointed with how like normal they are, but you know, we can are you? No, that makes, maybe I sounded like a, maybe I sounded obnoxious. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm not going to have any good, um, good fairies. That's, that's for sure. That's for sure. That's you, for sure you, you will there. be fixing that shortly, though. You got you to <laughs> yeah. report back to me on what you think. <laughs> All right. So check out the podcast anywhere you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, anywhere like that. Subscribe. If you use Apple Podcasts uh, or now Spotify, if you could leave us a rating and a review, that would help the show a lot. Otherwise, check out our website, bakabanter.com. Follow us on Twitter at bakabanterpod. And that's been it from us. We've been the Bakabanter Lads, and we'll catch you all in the next one. Thank you.